Hello and welcome everyone. I am Chris Hyams, CEO of Indeed, and welcome to the next episode of Here to Help. This is our look at how Indeed has been navigating the global impact of COVID-19. Today is July 19th. We are on day 503 of Global Work From Home. One of the key topics on Here to Help has been inclusion and belonging, which is one of Indeed's core values. And today, we'll be talking about accessibility and what inclusion and belonging means for people with visible and invisible disabilities. Indeed's mission is to help people get jobs, and accessibility is an essential component of our commitment to help all people. And to help us better understand accessibility and its importance today, I am joined by Stephanie Hagedorn, UX design lead here at Indeed. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Chris. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start off where we always start these conversations by asking, how are you doing right now? I'm good. I think uh, I'm nervous and I'm like just like a really sweaty person in general, but uh, also just Good and excited to talk to you first thing Monday morning. <laughs> well, uh, I'm I'm a nervous and sweaty person also, so uh, thanks for, for sharing that. Um, so before we dive in, we have a, a lot to talk about today. Let's just start with what it is that you do at, in- uh, at Indeed as a UX designer and how you help people get jobs. Yeah, so as a UX designer, we focus on the interaction between users and Indeed or our products. And so this usually entails a lot of research, like listening to um, our job seekers or employers as they, um, you know, use our our site or products or even prototypes, things like that. And we get a lot of information from them. Sometimes, you know, we do secondary research, like look at competitors or, um, you know, work with product managers to understand kind of the metrics behind the scenes. And then from there, we really just um, generate a lot of ideas on how to solve, you know, those problems that we observe and whether that's, um, writing on post-it notes or, uh, or te- typing post-it notes now, um, sketching, whiteboarding, things like that. Um, any sort of kind of fidelity, uh, we then work with our product and engineering partners on, you know, uh, prioritizing the right ideas when, to, you know, when to work on what, and then usually kind of building out the actual, design, how it looks, how it works, um, and then kind of working with engineering to, to get that onto our site and then testing again. And it's a big, big old cycle. <laughs> so, uh, so that's, that's helpful to kind of set the stage to understand about, um, I guess, day to day, what UX designers do. How, how did you end up as a UX designer? What, what got you to this place? I, uh, originally, like my mom was very, uh, really wanted me to become an architect. I know like you're also, uh, you know, we're once planning to be an architect. So I feel like we have a little kindred spirit there, but I would, um, I was a super cool kid who spent most of my time like playing in CAD (laughs) at like, just like normal eight-year-olds do. And, um, I actually, my mom gave me a CD. Um, she's a, a wonderful 
uh, feminist always, you know, wants me to kind of push myself and um, just, you know, dominate whatever field I'm in. But she gave me a CD that was, you too can be a female architect. It was like a little CD-ROM back in the day. Um, and I put, I put the CD-ROM in the computer, launched the program, and it turned out to just be like a JPEG of like women, like, like, uh, um, stock photos of women working at drafting tables. And I was like, this is not a compelling experience. <laughs> I, I, as a little, you know, eight year old is going, Hey, this could be a lot better. And I think that just sort of, um, carried me through, like, um, I was making angel fire websites and, you know, kind of redesigning my own MySpace. So I think I'd been a UX designer for a long time without really realizing it. Um, and when I went to college, we didn't really have UX as a program back then, many moons ago. Um, and so I did graphic design and that really got me into sort of uh, digital design and marketing. Um, I had been working uh, at uh, in-house doing marketing for, for a bank and just like really frustrated that like I had to kind of sell like our online banking or like, you know, sell products um, without really being able to kind of improve the experience of those products. Um, and that's when I got wind of IBM doing this whole big initiative of like bringing UX design to the, to the forefront, creating, you know, a more design centered, user centered, um, product development, uh, kind of organization within IBM. And I said, that sounds cool. I need to learn more about UX. And, um, so I joined, I was actually one of their first group of UX designers. Eventually they hired like, like 500. There's so many people there now. Um, but got to sort of be there from the ground up and learn a lot about UX product development, all the intricacies of working in a company the size of Luxembourg and, um, uh, you know, how to work with kind of all, all the different kinds of users that, that come with all the different kinds of products there. And um, really probably the most important was just in um, understanding it and kind of the importance of the, the responsibility that comes with you know, designing software for enterprise or for, you know, people who need to use that software to do their job and sort of how um, people of all, all needs and abilities uh, need to be able to use that software um, or otherwise they can't do their job. And that is a good way to make money. <laughs> so I know when we were talking uh, last week, getting ready for this, you, you talked about how important that experience at IBM was. Can you talk a little bit about some of the the things that you got from that experience at IBM? Yeah, I learned I learned so much while I was there, um, and accessibility was a really big deal at IBM. Um, they had a whole department um, devoted dedicated to it, like accessibility requirements, all the like legal reviews and stuff that go along with it, as well as advocacy. And um, it was probably my first time ever uh, watching someone like use a screen reader, someone who uses a screen reader like daily for, for all activities. And it was just an incredibly humbling experience to watch, you know, someone uh, be unable to use uh, the product that you designed because you hadn't even kind of con 
considered their needs when um, designing or making that product, whether that was just like uh, color blindness and, and we had done status colors and, and nothing else to indicate it. So um, seeing that and just being like, oh my gosh, I'm like a horrible person for not thinking of this. Which, um, uh, so I was just like, I'm like, I'm like a sponge person. Like if you ask me a question, I don't know it. I'm going to go spend like the next like four days researching it and then come back to you and be like, I know everything about that now. Um, so I was just like, let's, let's dive headfirst into accessibility. And, um, at the time I was also working on IBM's first design system. So, uh, while we built that, um, and learning about accessibility, it meant also just learning a lot about color contrast, how we were building out, you know, the color palette for, um, the entire company to use uh, keyboard navigation for the components we were building um, in our design system library, um, all the, the different alternative texts that came with um, the kind of icons and illustrations that we were developing for the system as well. Um, and we wrote a lot of guidance for um, teams at IBM to, to be able to reference and a lot of those to kind of tie back to uh, accessibility stuff. So, you know, especially around sort of animation and motion. So uh, we just tried to, I tried to take all of the, the learnings and research that um, I had kind of dove into in accessibility and kind of fake those into the design system there and um, help other people start to, to learn to be accessible through just using the tools. Yeah, so that leads into, I, I want to in a minute just get into a little bit more of the the sort of nuts and bolts of what, accessibility for software means? Because I think for a lot of people, this might be something that they just haven't had to think about at all. But, um, but well, so you've been a huge advocate um, at Indeed, but also outside of Indeed for more accessibility in design. Can you, can you just talk about wh what does accessibility mean to you? I mean, that might be a very broad question, but what is accessibility? Yeah. So um, to me, accessibility is, is really, I mean, like, to, to simplify it down is just the ability to access something. Um, and in the context of digital accessibility, it means the ability to access and use websites, products, services, um, and that they're designed and built so that everyone, um, including people with disabilities, can um, perceive them, understand them, navigate them, interact, um, and especially contribute to the web as well. Um, so, you know, that's how I see accessibility. We also like to shorten it to um, ally, A11Y. So if I say ally a lot, or if you hear someone else say ally or A11Y, they're, they're referencing accessibility. And, and just for people who are not in tech who don't know, it's because there's 11 letters between the A and the Y in accessibility. So we've, uh, we've been doing that for years in tech. Uh, internationalization is I18N, localization is L10N, so A11Y. But I do, I, it's, it's, was a cool thing to, to figure out that it looks like it spells ally. So I really, I really like that uh, as the choice here. So, so let's, let's just talk for a second. Cause I think again, part of the idea of when we talk about inclusion and belonging, it's um, it's creating an opportunity to raise awareness for people who do not um, have the, the set of experiences that someone might have coming from uh, some marginalized community where, where the things that we take for granted every day that just come easy um, are 
challenging, if not impossible, to others. So can you talk a little bit about, um, as a designer, what it means, uh, the role that, that color plays, where you, you mentioned colorblindness, and this is, again, if you're not colorblind, you probably don't think about this day-to-day, or, or what some of the other factors are that, that make software accessible. Yeah, so um, the, and, and I think we'll talk about um, the web content accessibility guidelines over CAG a little bit, but the, it's basically split up into kind of four main categories around um, how people can use or engage with web content. So um, color and, and a lot of visual design um, choices fall under this perceivable category, or basically the, the ability to, to, see or access the information, whether that's visually or um, auditory or even through uh, touch, through things like a braille display. Um, and a lot of the, the perceivable guidelines or recommendations are around you know, things like making sure images or iconography have alternative text. When it comes to color, there's um, a, a lot of rules, like one just around, you know, is there enough contrast, right? So so is your text too dark or too light on the background so that um, people with sort of uh, varying degrees of vision can see it? There's color blindness. So making sure we don't use you know, color to indicate um, color alone to indicate meaning. So there's always maybe there's an icon to support that color. Maybe there's a text label to support the color. But that way, whether you're red, green or, or total color blindness or, or blue, orange, kind of all whatever. Um, different kind of um, color vision uh, difficulty someone might have, there's always an alternative um, for them to reference and, and get that same uh, information, right? So perceivable is just making sure any information that that is visual on the page, even just like the hierarchy of text, right? If you have a big heading, um, myself and you, Chris, can see, hey, that's a big heading. I should look there. Um, but we want to make that information also perceivable to someone who might not be able to see that text and, and let the computer know, let the screen reader know that that's, you know, that's a H1, that's a, a level one heading. So I should be able to hear it first or navigate to it first or be able to easily find it just as um, you or I might be able to easily like locate it on the page. Um, and there's lots of lots of other um, different categories beyond sort of visual, but a lot of them tie more back into to how the site or, or product is actually coded, um, which we try to, uh, we want to start considering and, and thinking about earlier in the design process so that um, designers can have a, a huge effect on, on whether downstream it's maybe a more complicated solution to code or any other considerations like we'd want to make for accessibility, like even just, you know, the order that you focus through content on the page that, that we start thinking about those like sooner and, and during the design phase, as opposed to just leaving it up to engineers to kind of like have to solve on their own. Lots of different uh, requirements. Thank you. You want, you want some more? <laughs> no, so I think it's super interesting you know, I, I've been in the software business for a long time and um, and Indeed was the first place that um, I really ran into where, where people um, were thinking about and, and caring about this deeply. And, and, you know, one of the things for us that was really interesting, our, um, our color palette, you know, when, when Indeed first started the, uh, you know, back in 2004, 
we were not thinking about accessibility. And Indeed's colors were bright blue and this sort of radiant orange, which um, definitely stands out and is is noticeable. Uh, but we used the the entire site because we've always actually valued simplicity. So we haven't had you know as much maybe graphic richness as maybe some other places. So we used text, and in a lot of places, uh, orange thin text was the way that we identified the most important information on the site. And it turns out that there's a, a decent percentage of the population that um, cannot see that at all. So the most important information was lost. And so we got that motivation, I think, pretty clearly. But uh, so I guess I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about really the, the motivation for why people should should care about accessibility, especially when it comes to design, because there's sometimes this conflict between what maybe a designer thinks is attractive um, and what makes something accessible um, or from a business perspective because it's extra work it's an, an investment and what is the what is the the general case for why this is something that everyone should care about yeah I think it's like really easy or maybe kind of like a cop-out to just say like it's the you know like ethical thing to do but there's also just like it makes and I'll just start with like business first it makes a lot of business sense to if you can get more users or more customers, like that generally means more money for the business. Um, so I feel like just uh, it makes good business sense to have more users. Um, and that means kind of supporting the, the diverse users who, who would be using your products. Um, but, uh, and you kind of bring up like people see accessibility as a burden. It's like one more thing. Um, and I think it, it just comes with it, it being something sort of new. I feel like um, internationalization and security, these are all similar things that maybe, you know, people weren't thinking about, you know, as a, as a small company or, or maybe as like their responsibilities. But as we grow and, um, you know, we need to start thinking about people in other countries or, or maybe start thinking about people um, who are uh, blind or, or can't... Uh, here are video content, right? Um, so <laughs> I think uh, it's it's just um, making sure that it's like baked into our process more. I think a lot of people can kind of think it's like, oh, it makes my design ugly or it's something I have to do. They think about it at the end. And anytime you retrofit requirements, like it's gonna it's gonna make things messy or, or make things more complicated as opposed to thinking about those requirements or, or constraints from the beginning then those are things that we can respond to and um and 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 be a starting point for ideation even even more um kind of jumping off points or room to ideate um and that's when it doesn't feel tacked on that's when it doesn't feel like, oh, I had to change all my text to like dark gray and now it's like really hard to see or like, um, you know, this is the only color in the, the color palette I could use because I had enough contrast as opposed to like, let's think about that whole color palette um, and and find more colors that we can use or or create, you know, more combinations that that work and, and have the proper tools. So I think it's 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 more about accessibility just becoming um, like top of mind for us or like, or like at just part of everything else we consider. Um, and that's when I think it will feel less tacked on. It will feel less burdensome. It's just part of our 
responsibilities, like, like everything else <laughs> on our plate. Yeah, you know, I think the the other thing that we've certainly seen a lot is that um, all of these things people tend to think in in sort of extremes, but but there's a a spectrum, and that when when you think about accommodations, anything that we can do from even in our physical building, if you if you have a, a ramp to to get in, yes, you might be building that for someone in a wheelchair. There's a whole host of people for whom that actually might be an easier way into the building than going up the stairs, and I think the same, you know, there's people who wear glasses and who might find actually something with its higher contrast a little easier to work with, uh, whether or not it makes it even just possible to use. And so, you know, and it was also staggering to me early on in some of this work, just to look at some of the numbers. These might feel like um, sort of fringe issues, but uh, there's numbers that I've seen thrown around that says a quarter of the U.S. population suffers from some disability or another. And that's, that's really significant when it comes to thinking about how many people might be left out of an experience. And I think, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. No, I'm please, please. <laughs> I, and I think that that number is super like under, but that's an underestimation, right? And, and that's maybe people who I identify as, as disabled or with permanent disabilities, but I know you've kind of talked about um, mismatch before, but just that I think at some point, every one of us ex will experience um, some sort of disability, whether it be permanent, um, long-term, or or just temporary. And I know, like, personally, I love captions. Captions are amazing, especially if I'm watching, like, <laughs> like a British TV show, and I'm just like, what are they saying? Or I don't know. I love, in case I missed something, I can go back to captions. Um, I love zooming in. I, I, even though, you know, my little eagle eye designer eyes, I have, you know, Slack is the, I zoom the font size so that I can kind of read it comfortably. And there's all of these, um, accommodations that were made for accessible reasons, but are, you know, I think a lot of people totally, um, engage with them. I think there's this really limited mindset that, you know, if someone has a visual impairment, they're a hundred percent blind as opposed to just like someone's outside on a sunny day. And so, you know, the contrast on their phone is a lot lower. Um, so this idea of sort of um, designing or, or building products for um, people with disabilities is, is a fringe audience. Like I think um, you know, no, no one is, is normal or whatever that means. Right. We're all, we're all unique and we all have our, um, uh, different needs and wants and um, constraints. And it's around, it's, it's about providing options and making things available in, a, in as many ways as we can so that whatever kind of works best for you, kind of, you, you get to choose your own best adventure. <laughs> If you like this interview and want to hear more, hit subscribe. Catch up on any Here to Help episodes you might have missed, like my conversation with Mario Carpenzano, and get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Stephanie Hagedorn after this break. Yeah, there's a uh, a principle in in architecture, uh, Lewis Sullivan was one of the the first people to sort of propose this that that form follows function. So there's there's always this, 
you know, tension between what is what is beautiful and and what is useful. But but to me, that's always resonated with me that that things that are things that are useful uh, are beautiful because of their utility. And so, um, to sort of get a little bit into kind of how, how we actually work with the stuff day to day. So there's a there's a, a set of standard guidelines, um, the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, or WCAG, as you helped me understand, that's how it's uh, pronounced shortly. Um, talk a little bit about the WCAG and how it impacts your work and, and what role um, public policy actually plays in helping to make the internet more accessible. Sure. So just like, you know, you brought up architecture and, and form and function, you have things like universal design, which um, uh, visual web design borrows from also, but just like buildings have like code requirements, like you mentioned for, you know, wheelchair access or, or um, other, other different, um, you know, curb cuts and things like that. Um, so just like physical requirements, like from the ADA, we also have the web content accessibility guidelines. Um, they are uh, written and managed basically by the, the W3C, um, which if you know, if you're, big into to just the web they're sort of the authoritarian like um uh, on all things web so uh they they write and manage these guidelines and then countries across the world have chosen to adopt those as sort of requirements or laws in um whether um government websites specifically need to follow it or all um all commercial sites just like you know, a storefront would have requirements for, for people with disabilities visiting. So too must their digital storefront. So depending on countries, um, they've chosen to adopt different kind of levels of um, WCAG or their own kind of versions of WCAG. But generally, um, people have uh, used WCAG as sort of the, the baseline on, on what, what is accessible. Um, so it's really helpful in terms of like, giving designers and developers a foundation um, of techniques and um, vocabulary for discussing and creating accessible solutions. And um, so you can't really say your site's accessible if you're, um, if you fail to meet kind of the um, success criteria in WCAG. Um, but the inverse like isn't necessarily true, um, which might, I, I don't know, people might question that, but just because you're following WCAG doesn't mean, you know, you've covered every as aspect of accessibility. These are guidelines. And even if you go look in the guidelines, I think like the first or second paragraph on kind of like what is WCAG and, and where we're at, they'll say like, this is not everything. And they'll specifically not acknowledge things like, um, uh, like, um, like, uh, developmental kind of like, uh, mental, uh, disabilities and stuff like that aren't totally covered in WCAG. They haven't spent a lot of time on it. And as WCAG evolves, right, we're in version 2.1. 2.2 is um, in, in draft right now. And um, I think even elements of 2.3 have been started, but um, they're moving towards more uh, mobile um, specific kind of guidelines, more um, things around touching and tapping and, and anything for kind of um, dexterity impairments and, and, and um, different assistive technologies that can help with that, um, as well as things like um, e even uh, guidelines around, you know, dyslexia and, and, and reading disabilities and things like that. So 
a lot of that's not in the guidelines right now, which which is uh, just to say that just because you're following the guidelines, it really is a baseline. I think I uh, we were talking about it before and I said it's like just because you have your driver's license doesn't make you a race car driver. Like there's <laughs> there's um, lots of differences between, you know, a totally inclusive, um, accessible website for all and, and what passes WCAG. So I think um, I think WCAG is a really great start, but it, it's a it's a start. So one of the recent projects that you were uh, able to work on was uh, a pretty significant uh, refresh of the Indeed brand identity, which was very large scale. It was global. It touched essentially every aspect uh, of our business from what the the app and the website look like to our emails and marketing campaigns. And can you talk a little bit about the experience of working on a, on a project of that scale? Yeah, I was really excited um, to be a part of just the um, amazing work that went into the Aurora rebranding um, efforts. I think like <laughs> when I started at Indeed, I remember, um, well, I think I had been here about a year and the we brought on Dave and kind of the new brand systems team. And I'm like, hi, here's everything I think about our brand colors. And they're like, mm-hmm. oh my goodness, like <laughs> where to start? Um, but a lot of times, you know, branding efforts are very focused on the look and feel and um, and just sometimes, uh, and, and not any any fault or, or any blame on anyone, but they're, they're sort of less focused on how the actual brand elements will be implemented. Um, so like when we actually put them on the site. So if you look at sort of the, the previous brand, you mentioned like the blue and orange, like that, you know, maybe that stands out in the marketplace and people recognize the, the blue and orange combination. But like you said, when we put text in that orange color, suddenly, you know, some people can't see it or it's hard to read or it's, it's even like straining on the eyes for some people. And, um, the, a lot of problems I saw both at, at IBM with kind of their marketing palette and, and here when I came to Indeed was just um, the combinations or, or sets of colors we had have a, have a, have a lot of varying um, luminosity uh, or, or value in color. And it can make it really difficult to determine which combinations, you know, which gray on white, which blue on, on black or whatever, uh, or gray is going to meet that contrast requirement from WCAG. You don't know. And then that starts to put a lot of um, effort on designers to always be running, um, you know, checking their hex values uh, to make sure it it passes the color contrast rules. Instead, we can just, you know, work with the brand team beforehand and say, let's build a color palette that's going to work for everyone, for marketing, for, um, for development, for our users that, understanding that we're going to have these contrast requirements, let's set up, you know, knowing that, and not to get too technical, but like some of the numbers are like, you know, you'll need text, uh, your, your text will need to be 4.5 one to one um, contrast ratio. Big text needs to be three. AAA is seven to one. Like, and knowing these, these sort of steps, then we can start like creating specific grades or values of uh, in the color palette um, to make sure that then you go, oh, I just need to use our primary blue and I know that's going to work on white. Then I suddenly don't have to kind of run all the stuff through my contrast checker or 
not check it at all. It gets into development and then QA goes, oh wait, none of these colors work. And then we have to go all the way back to design and that costs a lot of time and money. Um, so we can, you know, just the ability to, to work with Dave and the brand team and bake accessibility into our brand was um, a, just an awesome opportunity. So we, we did the, the color uh, palette, which took a lot of guesswork out, color contrast. We also worked with them just in, you know, I think um, when they were choosing the different typefaces, which ones felt more readable and the different weights for that, so that if text got too thin or kind of lost. Um, also worked really closely there. Um, the brand systems and design systems are partnering with, uh, part partnered with myself and other ally SMEs to, um, they're working on data visualization. So making sure charts and graphs and everything, the color combinations we use and other things like patterns and labels um, will be accessible as well. So things like status colors. Also, we went back and forth. You don't know how many like reds and greens we worked. We looked at. Can, <laughs> I'm sure like I don't know if Nathan's watching, but Nathan and Franichek were all just like, well, this red could be like a little more red, and this green darker. But that these considerations and and taking them up front are gonna. Um, they just have a lot of sort of like amplified impact as you go, and it, it will just make things a lot easier um, to be accessible down the road. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, and, and it's great. You know, one of the important sort of concepts that you got there. And it, we, we talk about this a lot in, in different areas, whether it's, you know, quality or security or accessibility, this idea of shifting left, right? So take something that used to be part of the end of a process where you'd look at something and say, oh, we totally forgot about that. And then you have to go back and redo everything where if you can take that and shift it to an earlier part of the process. And one, one important component of that is coming up with these are just the standards of how we do things. And if everyone understands that, then you can do it right from the start. It just leaves a whole lot more breathing room for actually the creative work of how is this thing supposed to work and how are we actually solving problems like helping people get jobs. And so one of the things, you know, in terms of if you have one person who's thinking about something, then mostly they get stuck in this end of the process you know, raising the flag at the last minute saying, you you really missed the, the ball here. We talk a lot about um, the importance of, of diversity on our own teams in terms of the more indeed inside represents the world around us, the better we are at identifying these things and, and thinking about them earlier on. So when you think about the the makeup of design teams in particular, how can we bring more people who themselves need the internet to be more accessible into the product development process. So we're thinking about and talking about these things much earlier on. Absolutely. Um, for design teams, I feel like it's exactly the same. And, and even um, uh, when it comes, you know, I think previously, you know, people would look at our resume and say, okay, where, where did they go to school? You know, is it a prestigious art school or, or, you know, a big design program? Um, you know, they come from like Stanford or CMU or whatever. Um, and I think it's more important to look and you know, talk, talk to people about their experiences, understand where they pull their creativity from rather than, you know, their, their, their school or their work in their portfolio. I want to, um, when I interview people, I want to have them talk through how or, or explain their uh, thought process, the kind of decisions they make. And um, also just kind of like, trying to understand what's something uh, new they can bring to the team, right? So maybe it's, we need more accessibility coverage and, and these people have 
this person has a lot of experience with um, screen readers or maybe um, they have they themselves or um, their family member uh, has has a, a disability. And so that life experience of understanding kind of the the barriers and complications that come from living in a world that's not kind of considered those needs, um, that understanding and, and life experience um, influences the work and can help educate uh, the, the team around them to, to understand those experiences as well. And I think um, beyond just accessibility, I mean, we've talked about, you know, kind of diversity, diversity here as well, just like um, all of the kind of different uh, audiences as far as like, you know, we have like caretakers coming back to work after a long time or people shifting from, you know, uh, careers that might be, you know, more well, traditionally blue collar to white collar or something like that. Um, I think the more we can look for just like you said, like people who represent our audience, like it just builds a stronger team. When you think about um, the the tension that, that does exist between um, teams that have a set of objectives and stuff they're trying to get done, um, or, or even, you know, we talked about this to designers who are, who are thinking about aesthetics and, and the experience. How can we educate more people so they understand that, that accessibility is not a barrier to innovation or, or is not going to stand in the way of, uh, of attractive design? Right. There's like this idea that it will make the product look ugly or boring or cluttered or just that it takes a lot of time. But um, understanding, I think that like, the amount of people and audiences this affects that overall these constraints and designing um, with them or, or within these constraints um, makes for a, a better product in the end. Like um, I don't often see like, I, I think attitudes have shifted and it's not necessarily that people don't think they should be accessible. I see more the question around how, um, whether that's in terms of like, knowledge and I think the the um PIDE and DI and B teams have done um and, and a lot of the ally SMEs like shout out to my ally friends um have done a lot to kind of educate whether that's through um making you know DQ courses available to to Indeedians or um uh the just all the um Slack support we provide um when people have kind of questions we try to respond like instantly it's almost a race. Um, but so, so it's more around, I think the how, and so un understanding like what are the requirements and how do I meet them? But then also like, do I have the space and time and tools I need to be accessible? So whether that's, maybe it does push delivery time, you know, a day, but that means, you know, we're not spending months remediating down the line. Maybe it does mean I need new QA tools or new design tools that help me be accessible um, but necessarily, I think like people, people want to do, I think people generally want to be accessible and empathic and like do the right things for people. And it, it's more around enabling those um, uh, people than necessarily, I think, sh shifting attitudes. I feel, I feel optimistic that we've shifted <laughs> attitudes and now it's just like, cool, let's get you doing it. That's, that's a great um, segue to the, to the, the final question that I, I always ask folks here, uh, we could keep talking about accessibility stuff for a long time. There's, you know, uh, a, a lot kind of like the, 
WCAG thing. I think we're just you know scratching the surface here. But um, if you can just look back over the experience of, of the pandemic and on a on a personal level, what experiences have you had that leave you optimistic for the future? Yeah, I'm I'm super hopeful that all the accommodations you know companies and businesses have made for both their employees and customers during the pandemic that we continue those. I think there's a lot of new digital accommodations and flexibility um, that have been put into place, whether that's the ability to work from home, um, making things like uh, Zoom and and live transcriptions and um, uh, things like that, just the standard or default for people. flex time or the ability to sort of, you know, work the hours that, that work for you. So if you need downtime for, for whatever reason, or, um, new days are amazing. (laughs) Please, please keep doing that. Um, (laughs) but I I think there's been a lot of accommodations made, not just out of you, but, but in lots of businesses. And I, I am optimistic that we'll continue those because, they do open the door for whole groups of people to um, participate again in um, companies or offices where they otherwise like wouldn't physically have been able to work or um, go and actually shop or use services in places they wouldn't have been able to physically, um, you know, get to a store. Um, I, I, I'm a little skeptical because I, I do feel and. And maybe it's like with this Delta variant, it's kind of like you have third wave and it's, there's so much kind of confusion around like, is it over at least in the U S or, or do we need to kind of, you know, stay on high alert. And this, there, there is this like wave or kind of like title. It's like a tidal wave or like urge to, to get back to normal. And um, I think normal worked really well for some people, but not for everyone. And um, I worry about us going back to the way things um, were and not like learning or evolving um, from the experiences of the last year and a half. Um, but hopeful that, you know, we come out of this um, understanding kind of the the access and um trade-offs we were able to make to make people feel safe, to make people feel heard, to make, you know, um, yeah, all that stuff. That's beautiful. Well, uh, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing your experiences and your, your insights in this area. And, um, thank you so much for everything that you do to help people get jobs and to make getting a job a little more accessible, uh, all over the world. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for listening to Here to Help. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and download the podcast to stay up to date with the latest episodes. Until next time.